Let's pray. Loving Father, please remind us of eternal realities and prepare us for them as we hear your word today. Amen. Well, there was an Irish comedian called Dave Allen who once said in one of his comedy routines, uh, I'm what you might call a practicing atheist. I'm quite happy to be an atheist because I think actually God likes atheists better. We never ask him for anything. We're not bothering him all the time saying, oh God, please help me, or I want this and this and this. He figured that God likes people who leave him alone. And I think Dave Allen's attitude is quite common and also quite convenient, depending on your point of view. If I leave him alone, then he will leave me alone and both of us will be happy. A lot of people work on that assumption. I ignore God, he ignores me, that's the way I like it, that's the way God likes it. God likes atheists better, they don't bother him. The last thing you want to do is become religious and start bugging God. Well, when you look at the situation of God's people in Ezekiel's time, you might think perhaps Dave Allen was right. God was punishing his people in Ezekiel's time. And if that's what you get for being close to this God, perhaps it's better to keep your distance from him. Perhaps you can imagine the neighboring nations around Judah thinking, look at those Jews, look at what their God is doing to them. In fact, God made a point of making his people a laughingstock and an object of scorn uh, to their neighbors. He punished them in the eyes of the nations. They had publicly dishonored God. God was now publicly punishing them to rescue his reputation. Now, of course, up to this point, God had been very, very patient with them. And we saw last week from chapter 22 how deep and wide their sin was. They thoroughly deserved what they were receiving. But still, their neighbours must have looked on and thought, well, look at that. Who would be a Jew? Uh, best keep a distance from that God. Maybe he likes atheists or idolaters better than his own people. At least we don't seem to annoy him as much, is perhaps what the neighbours were thinking. But in chapter 25... The prophecies of Ezekiel turn against the nations because God wasn't just going to deal with his own people and ignore everybody else. The fact is that even if you're ignoring God, he is not ignoring you because God is not just the God of one small corner of the world or one small nation. God is God over the whole universe and every nation and every person whether they call themselves an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist or a Jedi. The whole world and every nation is God's. So while most of Ezekiel is about God's punishment of his own people, today we're looking at the fate of those who look on and laugh and enjoy the suffering of God's people. What is the fate of the nations? The nations can look so impressive, so clever, so powerful, there's so much military muscle. In our day, we shudder at the thought of what if there's a war between America and China or economic power, uh, the market forces could plunge us all back into the Stone Age. And there are multinational corporations that are bigger and more powerful than real countries. And they not only control the supply of goods around the world, but also now the supply of information such that a company can manipulate our thoughts and opinions 
by the way they feed us news through our, through our mobile phones. The church cannot match that kind of power and influence in the world. Ezekiel 25 through to 32 concerns the fate of the nations. And God promises that they would face the same kind of judgment that his people faced. He mentions various nations, and then he focuses on the economic power of Tyre, and then the superpower of Egypt. Where are they all going to end up? And Ezekiel points to the grave. We're focusing on the second half of chapter 32 today, the conclusion to this international section of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel pictures Egypt joining all the other nations in the grave, their final destination. And we're going to get onto this very serious topic about what happens to the masses of people who die at a distance from God. All the hordes of Egypt and all the hordes of all the nations in every age who stood at a distance from the true God and followed their own way and gone down to the grave. I'm not going to go through uh, verses 17 to 32 of chapter 32 verse by verse because there's a fair bit of repetition here. I just want to point out the main features of this passage and then relate it to us today in the light of the coming of Jesus. The first ob obvious feature of this passage is that death is not the end. The Bible speaks of a place where people go when they die. It's called Sheol in the Old Testament, uh, translated as the grave, or in other word, the pit. It's the place of the dead. It's a kind of underworld. It's a quiet, shadowy, uh, dark place. At its best, it's a place of sleep and rest, and even being in the company of other people. At its worst, it's a place of utter darkness and silence and being covered in maggots and worms in one passage. It's the underworld. Here, as in other places in the Bible, it's not portrayed as eternal oblivion or sleep. It's a conscious existence in the grave. The picture here is obviously highly poetic and metaphorical, but we see Egypt descending and being greeted by the other nations that have gone there before them. There's a kind of fellowship in the grave, but it's not an enthusiastic, friendly fellowship. It's not as if they're having a party down there. The second feature here is that God rules the grave. It's God who puts people in their place. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 32, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and consign to the earth below both her and the daughters of mighty nations, along with those who go down to the pit. It's God who is deciding the fate of Egypt and all the nations. The Egyptians actually thought a lot about death and their general approach to death was denial. Uh, they'd carry amulets around on their person to ward death away. Uh, they would mummify the bodies of the dead like we've seen in the movies and try to keep them looking alive and bury them with lots of stuff so that they would have a better afterlife. They didn't have to inhabit a rotting corpse. But Ezekiel says here, it's the Lord who rules the grave. He decides what the afterlife looks like for each of us. And the third feature here is that a sorting occurs at death. There are distinctions made 
in the grave. Egypt was always something of a superpower in the ancient world, but when God consigns them to the grave in verse 19, he says, say to them, are you more favored than others? Go down and be laid among the uncircumcised. Being powerful in life makes no difference in death. Egypt is sent to a particular section of the underworld here that's reserved for the uncircumcised and those killed by the sword. And those phrases are repeated over and over in this passage and applied to each nation here. They were the nations that didn't know the Lord, uncircumcised. They spread terror and then in turn were slain by the sword. And a couple of times it mentions they bear their shame and disgrace in the grave. So there is shame in the grave. Some people go there in disgrace. It's not as if we die, therefore, and leave everything behind. Uh, what we do in life echoes in eternity, to quote uh, Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator. It says in verse 30 that the only consolation Pharaoh would have is that he and his hordes would not be the only ones there. There would be lots of violent heathen who lived and died by the sword in that section of the grave. But that, of course, is a very cold comfort for Pharaoh. And verse 32 hints at the fact that even if God used you to punish others in this life uh, by your violence or viciousness, that is no excuse for you. You're still responsible for the terror that you spread and you will go to the place where you belong. So this is the description that God gave Ezekiel of the fate of the nations in his time. Death is not the end. God rules the grave and a sorting occurs at death. So how does that relate to us today? How does it relate to our deaths? And how does it relate to our lives? Well, in terms of our deaths, um, of course, the growing attitude to death in our culture is just don't think about it. But no one has ever succeeded in just wishing death away. For a lot of people, it's like when really little kids play hide and seek and you say, okay, it's your turn to go and hide but they don't go anywhere. They just put their hands over their eyes because they think that if they can't see you, then you can't see them. People do that with death. They put their hands over their eyes and think, well, if I ignore it, it will never find me. But when people do think about death in our society, it seems that more and more they, they've decided to believe in oblivion. You die and that's it, nothing. That's what they say. And that, of course, fits the materialist view of the universe. All we are is matter. And when the matter disintegrates, then that's the end of me. There's just nothing oblivion from at that point. And it might be tempting to read um, this section of Ezekiel and write it off as the superstition of ancients who weren't as clever as we are. But Jesus confirmed the fact that we are not just bodies. We are also souls and our souls go on when the body dies. Your death is not the end of you. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So on the other side of death, each of us will face God and there'll be something of a sorting, those who know him and those who don't. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus who both die 
and Lazarus goes to join the fellowship of God's people with Abraham. The rich man goes to Hades, the New Testament equivalent of the grave, where he's in agony. And there are other passages in the New Testament that indicate that when a believer dies, they go to be with Christ. Um, there's the thief on the cross to whom Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there's Paul in Philippians 1 who says, I desire to, to, part, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So the grave doesn't hold the believer. Jesus takes them to himself when they die. But beyond that initial sorting at death, the Bible then points to a final judgment. Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel's uh, in exile in Babylon. And in Daniel's visions, in Daniel 12, verse 2, he says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. He's speaking of humanity being brought back out of the grave for judgment. And we're given a picture of that at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, a great white throne and the dead, great and small, brought before that throne for judgment and the books of our deeds being opened and examined. But there's another book, the Lamb's Book of Life, the list of all who believed and belonged to Jesus. And if anyone's name is not found written in that book, then they'll be condemned for their sins. So when we think about our deaths, that is what will happen when we close our eyes that last time in the hospital room or wherever it occurs, we should expect to find ourselves facing God at that point. And we should expect there to be a sorting and then a waiting with Christ or apart from him. And then the judgment and then the resurrection life with God or hell against God. In Ezekiel 32, we have this picture of the fate of the nations in the grave. But in a few chapters time, we'll be given a picture of the fate of God's people. Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones of Judah and Israel and God breathing life into those bones again and resurrecting his people and bringing them out of the grave. The grave won't hold God's people is the promise of Ezekiel. And we have seen that fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ when God literally raised him from the dead. And so as a Christian, the reason that I believe I won't be like Pharaoh going down to my place of shame and disgrace in the grave is Jesus. He is the difference. Because of Jesus, when I think of my own death, I expect that the grave will not hold me I will go to be with Christ and in God's time to resurrection life. So this chapter relates to our deaths in the sense that it's a hint of what a person faces if they don't know Jesus, but it's what they're rescued from if they do trust in Christ. But we shouldn't just think about our deaths. This also relates to our lives in a couple of significant ways. It relates to our perspective in life and our mission in life. Firstly, we see here that dominance in life in this world 
makes no difference in death. And that fact needs to shape our perspective on life. You can have all the money and prestige in this world. You can have lots of power. You can bully lots of people. But the moment you flatline, you are as naked as the next person standing before God. And a whole new set of things will matter at that point that perhaps you never bothered with in this life and you'll wish you did. The question that will matter most in death will be, where do I stand with God? And a second closely related question, how did I treat other people? Imagine yourself on the other side when your time comes. Who knows when that will be? What is going to count at that point? Where do I stand with God? And how did I treat other people? That thought should change our perspective and our priorities now. Those things should matter to us now, if those are the things that are going to matter on the day of our deaths. And secondly, this passage reminds us of our mission. This is a picture of the nations in the grave in their shame and disgrace. But God has now moved to reach out to the nations, which was always his plan. In the New Testament, it says God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. The thought of hordes and hordes of people languishing in the grave apart from God forever should trouble us especially now that God has said he wants them to hear about Jesus and be saved. It's our mission to help those billions of people avoid an Ezekiel 32 fate. There are hordes of people out there and they're telling themselves that God doesn't want to be bothered. They're joking that he likes atheists better and so forth. They're avoiding God. They're denying death. They're living for false gods or worldly priorities, knowing nothing of the risen Jesus, the only hope in death they don't know. But we know him, and we need to proclaim him to the nations. We humans can be very proud of our strength and our wealth and our cleverness, and Christians get sucked into playing the same games as everybody else in this life. But this passage should, should sober us. Rudyard Kipling uh, wrote a poem to remind us that we, just like all nations, must not forget under whose hand we hold whatever dominion we might hold. We mustn't boast in ourselves or our earthly positions. We must remember that the earthly glory of the nations fades. And the recurring phrase in Rudyard Kipling's poem is the one that's picked up every Anzac and Remembrance Day, lest we forget. It was originally in the poem, a warning not to forget God or how foolish it is to glorify ourselves in war or in whatever. Remember, remember the nations lying in the grave in their shame and disgrace, lest we forget. And the last verse of Kipling's poem says, for heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls not thee to guard. For frantic boast and foolish word 
thy mercy on thy people, Lord. The grave is waiting for everyone. The only hope is Jesus. Let's be clear on what matters. Let's be humble and lest we forget that. Amen.